Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. For most folks in the Lowcountry, the word Benny brings to mind images of Benny wafers, those small sugary brown discs that you'll find in local shops marketed as one of Charleston's signature treats, if not the signature treat of the Lowcountry. If you're new to the area, however, you might wonder, what's a Benny? And that's a fair question. Plain and simple, we're talking about sesame. The sesame plant, and more especially sesame seeds, have been an important part of low country South Carolina culture for at least 300 years, and 21st century foodies have ample justification to celebrate its place in our shared heritage. For the sake of argument, however, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Let's imagine that you are introducing Benny to a savvy visitor who's well familiar with the humble sesame seed, and your savvy visitor looks a bit perplexed. She might tell you that many cultures around the globe, from Japan to Egypt to Brazil and all points in between, use sesame seeds in their cuisine, including soups, sauces, salads, cakes, candies, and creams. How can South Carolina claim to have any unique association with sesame? Here's my response and the theme of today's program. Sesame, or Benny seeds, represent an important vestige of the African cultures that came to South Carolina more than three centuries ago. European settlers in the Lowcountry who exploited the Africans brought here observed the value of the Benny seed, adopted its African name, and once sought to produce it on an industrial scale. As a result, in a long-forgotten episode of Lowcountry history, for a brief moment, it looked as if South Carolina would become a Benny colony. That commercial venture never materialized, but the interest it generated in South Carolina laid the foundation for the spread of Benny throughout the American colonies and into the culinary fabric of these United States. Benny is one of several West African names for a plant that botanists have classified as part of the genus Sesamum. What we know as Benny is Sesamum indicum, a plant that was first domesticated in India and then transplanted to places like China, Japan, and Africa in prehistoric times. It grows wild in parts of West Africa, the ancestral home of most of the people brought to the New World, including to South Carolina, as enslaved laborers in the late 17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. The word Benny is used with a variety of spellings in the Wolof, Mande, Mandingo, and Bambara languages of West Africa. Then, as now, Africans use Benny in a variety of ways, as a food, as a medicine, and as a cultural object. Its seeds are toasted and used in various dishes. Crushing the seed releases an oil that has many uses. Benny leaves, when immersed in water, become very mucilaginous or slimy and create a beverage that is very useful for treating a variety of gastrointestinal complaints. In West Africa, Benny seeds are traditionally associated with good fortune and are given as gifts and planted domestically to cultivate good luck. In short, Benny is a fascinating topic with a rich cultural history. Dr. Dorothea Bedigian, a botanist at the Missouri Botanical Garden, has published extensively on the topic of the genus Sesamum, especially concerning its introduction from Africa into the Americas. Dr. Bedigian is certainly the botanical expert in this field, 
but she overlooked a few South Carolina details that I think constitute one of the most interesting and formative episodes in the American history of Sesame. I'm talking about the Great Benny Experiment of the 1740s. Now, that's a phrase I just made up, but you'll see what I mean in a moment. First, however, let's take a step back and look at the arrival of Benny in early South Carolina. Unfortunately, there are no surviving historical documents that tell us how and when Benny first came to South Carolina. The traditional story, however, is that Benny came here in the hands of the enslaved people brought here from West Africa, who planted it in their own little gardens on the colonial rice plantations of the Low Country. It's a simple, straightforward story, but it has good historical credentials. In the second half of the 18th century, several of the European-American writers who took notice of Benny observed that it was enslaved Africans who had brought it to their attention. But it may not have come directly from Africa to South Carolina. In the mid-1680s, an English physician, Sir Hans Sloan, reported that African slaves in Jamaica and other Caribbean islands routinely grew sesame in their private gardens for their own use. Since the majority of South Carolina's early slave population was brought here from the West Indies, it's possible that the first Benny seeds came to us not directly from Africa, but by way of our neighbors in Jamaica and Barbados. It seems likely that Benny first came to the attention of white planters in South Carolina around the turn of the 18th century. At that time, rice was a relatively new crop in the Low Country and was just beginning to gain attention as a profitable pursuit. By the 1720s, however, rice production had increased dramatically, and it was clearly South Carolina's most profitable export. And while many Low Country planters focused all their efforts on rice, others began looking around for other crops that might also bring rapid wealth to the colony. In addition to considering traditional European crops, South Carolina planters looked to their own workforce for ideas. Here, as in the West Indies and in Virginia, enslaved people didn't own any land, but they were allowed to grow a few crops for themselves in small garden plots that they tended after finishing their daily tasks. In such garden plots, enslaved people grew benny as well as other crops brought from Africa, such as okra, peas, and yams. At some point, white planters began experimenting with these African crops as well and started contemplating their usefulness on a larger scale. The first written record we have of this process dates from the summer of 1730, when a man named Thomas Lowndes presented samples of South Carolina-grown sesame seeds to British trade officials in London. Two nearly identical letters written by Thomas Lowndes to the British Board of Trade and Plantations and to the Lords of the Treasury survive in the National Archives of the United Kingdom, containing the earliest known description of North American sesamum. Let's hear an excerpt from Lowndes' 1730 description. A planter in Carolina sent me some time ago a parcel of seed, desiring I would try it and see of what use it would be. For, if it turned to account, South Carolina could, with ease, produce any quantity of it. By an experiment, I found 21 pounds weight of seed produced near 9 pounds of good oil. 
of which more than six pounds were cold-drawn and the rest drawn by fire. I take the liberty to send your lordships some of the oil and seed. The name of the seed is sesamum. It grows in great abundance in Africa and Asia, and the inhabitants of those parts eat it, as well as use it for several other purposes. It rejoices in the pine barren land, which is generally a light, sandy soil. An acre produces about 20 or 25 bushels, and each bushel weighs about 52 pounds, and 52 pounds yields 11 quarts of oil. It grows with very little culture. A friend of mine in Carolina will have a great quantity of it here in London before next Christmas. This seed will make the pine barren land of equal value with the rice land. The oil of it will be of great use in our woolen manufacture and is, for many purposes, even preferable to olive oil, of which commodity about 5,000 tons are entered annually at the Port of London. What became of Mr. Lowne's scheme, nothing is known. Apparently, the British Board of Trade and the Lords of the Treasury weren't too concerned about their country's heavy reliance on Italian oil imports. Perhaps you've never considered this, but Italian olive oil was once a valuable commodity in Old England and in her American colonies. Olive oil was used not only in cooking, but also as a salad dressing and as a component in the production of woolen clothing and felted hats. In short, Britain used a lot of olive oil, and they had no domestic manufacture of it. If you look at advertisements in Charleston's early newspapers, of the 1730s, for example, you'll find occasional notices for the sale of imported Florence oil, which is actually a high grade of Italian olive oil. We didn't get it directly from Italy, however. It came to South Carolina by way of England, and the distance and extra freight charges made it expensive and scarce. The prospect of getting an alternative supply of oil made from sesame seeds in South Carolina didn't seem to catch anyone's attention, at least in times of peace and prosperity. That all changed, however, when Britain and her American colonies went to war with Spain in 1739, a war curiously known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. Between 1739 and 1748, Britain waged war with Spain, and then France too, in Europe, on the Atlantic Ocean, and in the Caribbean islands. As a result of all this turmoil, Britain found it difficult to procure items such as olive oil, silk, indigo, and other goods that couldn't be produced at home. As a result, the British government prodded its American colonies for assistance in trying to supply its domestic needs. Just like our government does today, the British Parliament offered government subsidies to farmers who could meet their needs. Accordingly, in late May 1744, the South Carolina legislature ratified its own farm subsidy law titled an act for the further improvement and encouraging the produce of silk and other manufacturers in this province. The bulk of the text of this act concerns efforts to produce silk, and we'll save that for a future discussion. But the fifth paragraph of the act articulates a bounty or premium for the encouragement of the produce of wine, oil, flax, hemp, wheat, barley, cotton, indigo, and ginger in this province. 
In other words, our colonial government was offering a cash incentive to planters who could successfully demonstrate the viability of large-scale commercial cultivation of any of these crops in South Carolina, which would in turn allow South Carolina to take advantage of the subsidies offered by the British Parliament. Thus, in the summer of 1744, an agricultural race began, not just to see which of these crops would best succeed in low country soils, but to see which could be grown for the greatest return on investment. If you know anything about this state's early history, you probably know that indigo became an important export crop in mid-18th century South Carolina. The sudden rise of indigo in the mid-1740s was no fluke or accident, however, but rather it was the result of calculated and concentrated efforts spurred by our government's 1744 cash incentive. In fact, just 23 months after the ratification of the 1744 crop bounty, the South Carolina legislature promptly canceled the bounty on indigo. Why? Because in 1745, so much indigo had been raised in the low country that the continuation of the bounty would surely send the government into debt. Thus, by the spring of 1746, South Carolina planters had successfully demonstrated that indigo could be grown in large quantities in South Carolina, even though the question of its profitability was still a matter of some debate. But what about the other crops mentioned in the 1744 Bounty Act? The government bounty for vegetable oil and other crops was still on the table, so planters kept on planting. At this point in our story, enter Mr. Francis Gracia, a joiner or cabinet maker by trade, but also an important figure in the history of American sesame. How, do you ask? Because in late September 1746, Francis Gracia published the earliest known advertisement for sesame seed oil in America, an advertisement that also includes the earliest known use of the African word Benny in the English language. Here's the text of the brief ad, as it appears in the South Carolina Gazette of the 22nd of September 1746. There is made and sold by Francis Gracia in Church Street, opposite to Justice Thomas Dale, good salad oil of sesamum or benny seed. That's spelled B-E-N-N-Y. Approved by several gentlemen to be equal, if not preferable, to any olive oil imported here from Europe. Price, 15 shillings per quart. Gracia's role in the production of this Benny salad oil is a bit ambiguous, however. As a professional cabinet maker, he had probably built the hand-operated machine used to press the Benny seeds and extract the valuable oil. In fact, in June of 1733, the government of South Carolina granted to Francis Gracia a five-year monopoly on a machine he had invented, quote, for the more expeditious beating or pounding of rice, end quote. But we also know that Gracia, who lived on Church Street, was also a part-time planter and owned a relatively small tract of about 90 acres on James Island. Whether or not Gracia raised his own Benny on James Island or merely collected a quantity of seeds from other planters is a matter of conjecture. But let's stick to the main point. Francis Gracia was the first man in South Carolina to prove that Benny seeds, 
using the African term, could make a fine salad oil and to get his product to market. The real question, however, was whether or not it could be done with a sufficient margin of profit. The answer to that question appeared on the front page of the South Carolina Gazette just a few months later, on the 1st of December, 1746. At that time, the local economy was reeling from the effects of the war with Spain and France, and South Carolina needed all the help it could get. Indigo might be the silver bullet to fix the situation, but it was still in the experimental stages. In a detailed economic analysis, an anonymous correspondent calling himself Mercator tells us that South Carolina planters were still not convinced that indigo would be as successful as was imagined last spring, and this uncertainty, quote, ought to spur on everyone who has an opportunity of doing it to hold out the helping hand to his sinking country. In the meantime, it is now pretty certain known that indigo requires at least good corn land to be planted on, and it is well known that the sesamum will grow and yield very good crops on very indifferent land, such as most of the old worn-out plantations in the settlements, end quote. Mercator then presented the text of a letter recently received from a friend in London containing details about the market for various vegetable oils in Britain and the potential profitability of South Carolina sesame. The anonymous friend in London recounts how he took a parcel of Benny seeds from South Carolina and processed it into oil for experimentation. Using a hand screw press, he drew four ounces of oil from one pound of seed. Using a stone mill, however, he drew five pounds and 14 ounces of oil from 18 pounds of seed. The first oil drawn of this tasted pretty well, said the London friend, but the last was rancid or tasted strong of the seed, and there seems to be a great foot or sediment. This Carolina Benny oil would thus sell as a second or third-rate oil in London, and so the profit margins would be rather slim. Estimating that it would sell for three or three and a half shillings per gallon in London, our anonymous correspondent then took the time to calculate the cost of production, including the charges for freight from South Carolina to London, the cost of the barrels for shipping, and the charges of weighers, packers, porters, warehouse rent, import duties, insurance premiums, brokerage commissions, and contingencies. These calculations were done according to the rates during time of war, as was the state of affairs in the autumn of 1746, as well as the customary rates during time of peace. After detailed calculations and scrutiny, Mercator then summarized the bottom line for the readers of the South Carolina Gazette. Quote, the planter may reasonably expect 20 bushels from an acre, and that a common field hand can very well attend five acres. But, as my London friend observes, it's safest to go low in our calculations. So let us suppose that a hand can tend but four acres, and that they will yield only 15 bushels an acre, and that the net price the oil will yield in England is the lowest in the foregoing calculation, that is, 15 pence per gallon. And let us then see whether this commodity will not be well worth our while to go upon. Now, as he has proved that one bushel of seed will make at least two gallons of oil, 
we shall have 120 gallons from the four acres, which, sold in England clear of all charges at 15 pence per gallon, will produce to the planter seven pounds ten shillings sterling for the labor of a common field slave, only two-thirds part of the year which is a sum much greater, I imagine, than can be got by the labor of the best hand employed in rice, even at 40 shillings a hundred, and the labor of producing the oil will be infinitely less. But what a fund of riches will this article produce if our oil should net us, as it reasonably may be expected to do in times of peace, three shillings a gallon, and our land should yield us twenty bushels an acre, and a common field hand should be able to tend five acres of land. End quote. Clearly, some folks in South Carolina were very sanguine about the potential profitability of sesame. In early 1747, James Crockett, the official agent or lobbyist for South Carolina in London, sent over a model of an English mill for pressing benny seeds, and it was put on display at the Colonial Treasurer's Office for public inspection. By the end of 1747, however, the race was over, and Indigo, not Benny, was the clear winner of the competition to find the next big cash crop for South Carolina. In the spring of 1748, the young merchant Henry Lawrence shared this news with several of his London contacts. Quote, the sesamum seed and sesamum oil, said Lawrence, is no more talked of as an article for exportation here. End quote. Over the next few years, a few brave souls, including Francis Gracia, continued to sell Benny seed oil in Charleston. But the price was high and the demand not so great. By the 1750s, even Francis Gracia was growing indigo on his James Island tract, and he sold that property before he died in 1764 at the age of 70. In the decades after the Great Benny Experiment of the 1740s, it appears that most of the white community in South Carolina forgot about the little seed. Behind the big house, however, Many of the enslaved Africans here continued to grow small patches of Benny for their own use and occasionally shared it with their white masters. During the American Revolution, South Carolina planters continued to grow rice and indigo, but mostly for domestic use rather than for export. The war drastically changed our patterns of import and export, so it became more important than ever to raise a variety of crops for local consumption. This farming practice continued after the end of the war, when South Carolina endured nearly a decade of hard times as the local and national economies gradually recovered from years of wartime destruction. The British bounty, or subsidy, on South Carolina indigo ended during the American Revolution, and so local planters quickly abandoned indigo as an export crop. Just as our economy was beginning to recover in the early 1790s, Eli Whitney's newly patented cotton gen created a new market for the fluffy white fiber. South Carolina planters immediately threw themselves whole hog into the cotton business, and since Britain was ready to buy up all the cotton we could produce, the crop spread westward rapidly into the fertile lands of what would become Alabama, Mississippi, and beyond. 
Trade relations with Britain soured in 1807, however, and Americans once again began looking into fields and forests for alternative crops that might supplement the cotton trade. Over the years, a handful of botanists on both sides of the Atlantic had taken note of the presence of sesamum, or benny, in the American South, and it began to resurface. President Thomas Jefferson received a small parcel of benny oil in late 1807 and was so impressed with its qualities as a salad dressing that he added benny to his gardens at Monticello in 1808. In the 1820s and 1830s, a raft of physicians, both in the South and in the North, began touting the medicinal qualities of a drink made of benny leaves, specifically as a valuable treatment for what was then called the summer complaint, or infantile cholera. It seems that the mucilage, or slimy content of the leaves, made a very palatable and nutritious drink for patients that otherwise couldn't keep anything on their stomachs. In the 1840s, some South Carolina farmers became convinced that the international market for cotton was glutted, and that the future of Carolina cotton was doomed. In an effort to spur diversification, the South Carolina Agricultural Society recommended experimentation with alternative crops, including the production of benny oil, as a means of supplying our own domestic needs. At the same time, a new history-making cookbook was published. The Carolina Housewife, as it was called in 1847, contained a recipe for benny soup, the earliest known published American recipe for an African sesame dish. Then, during the American Civil War of the 1860s, Southern botanists and farmers again shined a light on the humble benny seed as a valuable crop that could help alleviate wartime shortages. In the years after the Civil War, the benny seed morphed into a nostalgic symbol of old times, a curious vestige of the old days of slavery. When the widows and daughters of local Confederate veterans needed to raise money in 1893, for example, they sold benny treats and made a handsome profit. Recently, I've been scouring the local newspapers to see if I might discover when benny seed treats first began to be sold commercially in Charleston. And I think I've found the answer. Around the year 1908, Mrs. Eleanor Williams and her family began selling Benny wafers, Benny brittle, Benny squares, and Benny sticks at their shop called Onslow's Candy Store at number 300 King Street. After World War I, other sweet shops began marketing similar novelties to the ever-increasing numbers of tourists passing through Charleston. After World War II, food writers from New York raved about these curious treats they discovered in the Palmetto City, and by the spring of 1950, you could purchase little bags of Charleston Benny Wafers at Macy's department store in New York City. The rest, as they say, is history. So the next time you bite into a deliciously sweet Benny wafer, or find toasted Benny seeds sprinkled on your dish at a swanky downtown restaurant, try to remember the long journey this little seed has taken over the last 300 years. From the hands of captive Africans to the dinner table at the White House, it's a wonderful story, 
and it's a delicious part of our Low Country heritage. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.